This week on Dig Me Out, Tim and Jay talk with Stephen Brodsky of Cave-In and Mutoid Man. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me, as always, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay, Why are you laughing? Oh, the cat's licking my foot. <laughs> That's why. Jojo. Uh, Jojo. Uh, it's episode 229, Jay. 228. Don't you feed him? Excuse me, 228. Yes, I do. Do you feed him humans? I feed him human beings. It's like the Walking Dead in this house. I just well, have a couple... That explains why he's licking your feet. Though. Exactly. 228, Jay, of season five. And we have another excellent interview for everyone. In terms of sticking to our format, I understand that this one's going to vary a little bit off the format. We're talking with, this evening, Mr. Stephen Brodsky of Caven. Currently of the band Mutoid Man, but uh, Caven only put out basically two records, and one of them was a compilation in the '90s. The majority of releases for Caven has come out in the 2000s. Jupiter, which is the record that I'm most familiar with and and really enjoy the most, that came out in 2000. So that's right on the the cusp of the '90s. It was recorded in the '90s, so I consider it a '90s album. Yeah, and their their early stuff is. You know, well within the '90s, and yes. while it might not have been as commercially successful, it was certainly um, had an underground following, and that's how you know Jupiter and Antenna. That's how I came to those records. Is just the, the amount of buzz that those initial releases built around the band. Exactly led me to them at that point. So, so let's lead you now into our interview with Stephen Brodsky. How are you doing this evening? Doing well, man. Um, cool. It's pretty mellow over here, and yeah, that's about it. Chilling with the uh, the turtles and my cat. <laughs> cool. Well, thanks for uh, thanks for doing this. Jay and I are. I, w- I would say I don't want to speak for Jay. Actually, I shouldn't speak for Jay. I- I'll say I'm a huge fan of uh, of Caven, specifically the the Jupiter Antenna era of of the band. I'm sure Jay, you're also a fan, right? Yeah. Yep. That's, that era. Yeah, and it's been really in in preparing for the interview, listening to all the other stuff you've been working on, like the most recent stuff with Mutoid Man has been really interesting. In terms of, I guess we'll get started. And and I wanted to ask, you started playing in, in bands at a really early age. What was the the catalyst for that? Was it did you have music in your house? Where did you have parents that played, or did you just have an early interest in music? How did that come about? Well, my dad played guitar in bands when he was younger. So there was always a guitar kind of kicking around the house, you know, guitars that he used in his bands when he was a kid. And I remember being interested in the guitar and, you know, he didn't play much by the time I could remember sort of taking an interest in the guitar. So I'd come across one and it would kind of be out of tune. And so I'd have sort of, I would have fun just sort of, turning the tuners on the thing and trying to make something happen with it. And, yeah, it wasn't until 
I was 11 or 12 and I took guitar lessons and my folks were really supportive of that. And my mom drove me a couple times over once a week to get lessons from this old blues guy. And that's kind of how it started for me. And even before that, you know, music was a big part of my life. Um, I have very specific memories with certain records being in this place or that place or with these people at this time or I was wearing this or doing this or that while I was hearing, you know, a lot of my early favorite records uh, from growing up. So, yeah, I guess as far as playing music and writing music and all that, it was just sort of meant to be, I guess. What were those early records? Um, the earliest is probably America, A Horse With No mm -hmm. Name. Mm -hmm. I mean, I could listen to that record over and over and over again. I remember hearing it at my grandparents' place. And, and then later on, Appetite for Destruction, you know, it was the first time I heard somebody saying curse words on a record and it feeling really special and important that I could sort of have these things on my, you know, have this record on my headphones and things were happening that my folks would probably, you know... It was like a very rebellious moment for me, I think. Um, it was kind of dangerous. I remember that too. Like Appetite for yeah. Destruction was the first album in the in the '80s. We were like, "Oh my gosh, these guys seem like they they could hurt people. Like these guys seem dangerous." <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, totally. Ride the lightning. I had like a really crappy dub copy of it. And there was like skips on it, and, but I loved it, you know, and. It was like a very isolated thing for me. Like I could just sort of zone out in my room with the door closed and, and listen to this music and feel like, you know, it was sort of feeding me or developing me into something that was different from my parents or even some of my friends at the time. How were you finding that stuff, that music? I can't remember how I came across Appetite for Destruction. It may have been this old childhood friend of mine who lived about... A block away from me he had an older sister who was dating this guy that was like your typical sort of 80s stoner type long hair jeans oftentimes not wearing a shirt didn't have a job <laughs> spent a lot of time just kicking around in his older sister's bedroom listening to music really loudly and it was always muffled with the door closed but he let my friend raid his tape collection. And I think that's probably where we were able to dub most of the music that hit us pretty early on. You know, stuff like Appetite for Destruction or Metallica, Anthrax, Megadeth. So in um, terms of yeah. uh, of guitar players, I'm assuming that since you had the guitar laying around, that that's the instrument that you were, you know, listening to records to and trying to figure out what people are doing were there any particular guitar players or albums that you were trying to you know at an early age trying to figure out how they're doing what they're doing yeah i i remember thinking that it was really exciting to try to learn old metallica songs and feeling like i was actually spending my time in a worthwhile manner actually succeeding at learning some of the stuff and playing it so that it sort of sounded like what I was hearing. But that was also after discovering 
a distortion pedal. Like, <laughs> I remember buying an amp uh, with some paper route money and being real excited to take the amp home and play what I thought was going to sound just like all the records that, mm-hmm. you know, I'd been learning or trying to learn. And I was really disappointed when I just plugged in and it turned out to be just this, like, <laughs> amplified, <laughs> clean tone. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't until I figured out that there was an extra step involved and, you know, that really upped the playing for me. You know, I could just spend, like, four or five hours at a time after school up until, like, I had to eat dinner. Like, the latest I could possibly eat dinner before, you know, my parents were really upset at me or something. But that's what I was doing when I was, you know, seventh, eighth grade. That was, like, that was it for me. So at what point does the playing along with Metallica Records evolve into discovering, say, punk or hardcore or some of these other sounds that would inform um, the music that you would later make? I think when it became a social thing, it started to transform a bit. You know, like um, friends that I had in middle school, we started to get together and, and actually play and form bands. And that's when everyone's taste kind of started to mix a little bit more and for me it was sort of a learning experience to start to discover slowly um, music outside of what I was able to just sort of figure out on my own or discover on my own and I think for me it was like reading liner notes of records sort of figuring out that you know there was more stuff to be discovered that I hadn't heard. Maybe it wasn't on. It wasn't being played on MTV or the radio. So that was kind of a roadmap for me. I think a band like Nirvana was pretty important to me because they seemed to wear their influences on their sleeves um, pretty boldly, and they were a band that really sort of championed the idea of covering all the stuff that seemed to really make them who they were. You know, mm-hmm. and so I got into the Wipers and the Vaseline, the Melvins, you know, all the bands that they were very outspoken about having strong feelings towards. You know, I, I naturally just sort of gravitated in that direction. And most of the time, you know, it was pretty right on. Like, you listen to any Wipers cover that Nirvana's done, and then you go to the original, and there's not much distance. You know, their covers are really honorable. So it made it easy to kind of, like, connect the dots that way. Yeah, I would say that in terms of bands in the 90s that actually, like you said, wore their influences on their sleeve, I think that after they covered, was it Jesus Don't Want Me For A Sunbeam? Was that the the Vaseline's cover that they did? Um, yeah. I think everybody, like, went out and bought a Vaseline's record after that. I think that was probably, like, the greatest shot in their um, sales history is because Nirvana covered them because I remember like I was like oh who's this band and ran out and bought a Vaseline's record because I wanted to hear what it sounded like originally and really you didn't get that in a lot of other bands like Soundgarden rarely in terms of recorded um, songs didn't put out any covers except for like one or two on B-sides 
and, and you know Pearl Jam was the same way in terms of like the big bands at that time. Um, it was really Nirvana was the only one that was sort of paying homage to the, the bands that they were influenced by. I also thought it was kind of just bold that they chose to cover stuff that most people didn't really know outside of, you know, maybe outside of like Seattle, what was going on with the Melvins at that time, or outside of, especially with the Wipers or the Vaselines. Like it was almost sort of like an education, you know, there was like an educational sort of quality to their choosing of covers to do. And I always thought that was very honorable. So that, I don't know, that stuck with me. It's like the whole idea of doing covers sometimes is you learn a set so you can play the corner bar somewhere, you know, on like a Tuesday night. <laughs> or like you play for somebody's wedding, a bunch of stuff that people are very familiar with. And they just kind of flip that whole notion upside down, which I thought was cool. And then if you listen to live bootlegs of them covering you know, hit songs or like recognizable songs, they purposely play them like total shit just to kind of take the piss out of them, you know? Right. So were your early bands focused on covers? Um, not really. Mm-hmm. Actually, my earliest bands were pretty set on writing original stuff. And there was definitely some covers that we would do, but more just to kind of like blow off steam. I don't know. For me, it was always very important to feel like a band was sort of crafting its identity with, you know, original music. I don't necessarily feel that way now, but when I was younger, you know, that just seemed really important to me at the time. And were were you uh, a writer in those early bands? Yeah, definitely. And early on, it was very basic. It was very like verse, chorus, verse, chorus, guitar solo, feedback end of song <laughs> you know uh, <laughs> yeah uh, and it was the sort of thing where like we would get together in an afternoon and like quote unquote write a record and we would just set up you know a little boom box and we'd have one microphone and there'd be some experimentation involved with you know placing the microphone generally closest to the bass drum mm-hmm. um and then positioning the amps sort of carefully around it so that you get the most even mix possible. And, yeah, you just play until, you know, your parents show up to pick you up. And that's it. <laughs> so is this grade school or high school? This is, this would be grade school. This would be like eighth grade, maybe. Okay. 13 years old, 14. And you're playing guitar or bass? I was playing guitar. Were you trying to sing at that point at all? I was, yeah. But I didn't have a PA to sing into. It was that same microphone, so I just have to sort of like hunch over and get as close to it as possible without blowing out the recording mm-hmm. and kind of just go for it. I didn't actually like get on a microphone and start singing, feeling like I was actually singing in such a way that would make sense to actually a band perform that is like you know on a separate mic positioned on a mic stand until you know maybe i was like a freshman in high school so were you taking guitar lessons through through all of this i took guitar lessons for about a year i was either 11 or 12 i I think it was maybe 12 
12 years old. I took lessons for about a year. And I just kind of took enough lessons to the point where I felt like I could just sort of play all the music that I wanted to play and imitate all the bands and artists that I could imitate, you know. And again, I was taking lessons from this old blues guy, so I, I really was into the technique. And, you know, I loved Led Zeppelin growing up, so we really bonded over that. But there was this one turning point where he, I remember my teacher complaining about one of his bass students bringing in Amnesia, pulling teeth, Metallica, bass solo song, because he wanted to learn it. And my teacher was really upset about that. He was like, you know, I don't know what it is about this song. I can even call it a song. There's mistakes all over it. And, you know, the wrong notes. And I just kind of looked at him and I was like, man... Yeah, we're just not going to see eye to eye on this. <laughs> so that was like one of many turning points. But he was amazing. He was an amazing player. Like he was doing stuff that I don't know was really advanced for me. And I just always got the sense that he had faith that I could get to somewhere close to the point that he was at with his playing ability. But he was also really into reading music and sight reading. And you know, I was like a 13-year-old metalhead. I didn't want to be looking at music paper, you know? I just wanted to, like, grow up my mullet and just fucking swing that thing around and, you know, play riffs, you know? Yeah. Not look at yeah. a piece of paper. <laughs> How can I look at a piece of paper if my head's swinging around? Uh, that was my <laughs> attitude. Sometimes yeah. I wish I had stuck with it a little bit longer, but you know, I also have heard stories about, like, you know, friends of mine who, you know, had music teachers that were like, you know, swigged from like a whiskey bottle or something in their car before they had to get out and give a lesson. So <laughs> I guess maybe I lucked out in that regard. Mm -hmm. So did he teach you sort of like chord fingerings and, and basic scales or was it a bit more advanced than that? Were you getting into like different types of tunings and because imagine if he's blues guitarist, he might be playing like with an open tuning for like a slide or something like that was was he getting into sort of the more advanced aspects of guitar or is it just sort of like here are the chords here are the basic scales you need to know oh it definitely started with the basics but you know again i was taking it really seriously and i was playing a lot and i don't know it must have shown because when we got into finger picking he encouraged me to wear a thumb pick which i didn't really stick with and only up until like five years ago did I sort of pick that up again. But, you know, we were doing stuff like lead techniques and, you know, he was showing me like ways to make it sound like you could play a bunch of notes and, you know, with this sort of like really lazy sort of picking technique where you're just sort of like skipping across all the strings and it sort of sounds like a sweep, but it's not. Just really like um, deep-rooted sort of blues-style playing We'd also just do like 12 bar blues type stuff so that we could each play like lead stuff over it and kind of swap back and forth. And, you know, it was uh, it was a really good education, I think. Um, I wish I had stuck with it a little bit longer. But again, it was like I just sort of felt like once I had the tools to, you know, play through um, Seek and Destroy, like uh, that was that was it. I had my wings like I was ready to go. <laughs> So what was your first uh, real real band? Um, 
Well, the first band that ever actually played a show would have been a band called Quinine. And it was sort of an extension or a mutation of a, a previous band that I had done with J.R. Connors, uh, the drummer of Caven. He and I really got together maybe as like early as late seventh grade. He was like the only person I knew who played drums. And I heard he was really good, but I'd never actually heard him. So I have this memory of inviting him over to my house after school one day. And I think he was a little reluctant because prior to having taken guitar lessons and really sort of showing that I was into a lot of the music that I'd liked, um, I was sort of like, I don't know, I wasn't like a full-blown metalhead. I was actually like really sort of confused about who to like hang out with. I was like this sort of like social weirdo, you know, I had friends who were like really into sports and they liked music, but more like on like a popular level. They sort of liked kind of everything, whereas I didn't really feel that way. But, you know, I just didn't know how to express it. Or, or if I did, what would it matter? Because I didn't really know anyone else who sort of felt a little bit more like me. So, you know, JR, I think at first was like, well, I don't know if this guy's like a real metal dude i don't know i don't know if he's like really in or if he's like kind of like one of the you know one of the more popular kids or sporty kids you know i mean again this is all middle school bullshit you know um, mm -hmm. the stuff movies are made of but he came over and you know i was like playing through some songs that i knew and you know nirvana metallica megadeth or whatever just doing like hack versions of some stuff and i don't know he seemed really impressed at least enough to like jam together um so yeah that was my first sort of introduction into playing in a band you know it was with jr so yeah we did a band called new breed which we had a concert in my parents backyard at one point it was like the end of eighth grade it was kind of like our end of middle school bash holy shit we're about to go to high school um <laughs> that sort of thing and then it just sort of continued from there. Were, the, were um, those bands, would you call them metal bands, or how would you classify what you were playing? Well, it's funny, you know, because you read about, like, grunge and how it was sort of this, like, media thing that was, you know, made up or it was just a word that was sort of capitalized on by, like, major labels at the time and, you know, people involved in corporate music world marketing and blah, 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 blah. But, you know, growing up in Bethune, Massachusetts, this suburb, you know, like a half hour north of Boston, you know, we, we took that really seriously. Like, grunge was like a thing. It was like, no, that's, that's it. I mean, there's even a, a DOD effects pedal called the grunge. I mean, it's official, <laughs> you know? <laughs> it says so in Hit Parader and big yellow letters or whatever, you know? Um. So we would always call ourselves a grunge band. You know, or at least I would. I, that's kind of how I thought about it. And to me, it was like a melting pot of all the stuff I liked, you know. I mean, growing up playing guitar under the wing of a blues player, you listen to bands that are classified as grunge, and there is a strong blues element. There really is. Mm -hmm. So that made sense to me. You know, I loved heavy metal growing up. So, you know, there's definitely something metal about grunge. Okay, cool. 
And then there were bands like, you know, I mean, all the bands that were sort of popular in that day, they would take a moment to, like, put the electric guitars down and grab an acoustic and, like, you know, do some campfire jams or something, you know? And I was like, all right, I'm into that, too. That's really cool. You know, I was taking lessons with an acoustic guitar, so, you know, that was very much natural to me to want to go that route. So, yeah, that was what I thought of, you know, myself, or I, that's what I sort of musically identified myself with, you know? Mm -hmm. It's like this melting pot, this grunge, you know? <laughs> yep. So you mentioned that uh, JR was in the band with you before Cave In. So how did Caven come to be exactly um, with JR? So, let's see. Sophomore year of high school, maybe even earlier than that, you know. Um, I mean, we went to a really big high school, um, at least, you know, compared to a lot of people that I know. When I say really big, I mean, our graduating class was like 2,000, maybe a little more. I mean, that seemed pretty big at the time. Yeah, that's um, pretty big. I, I mean, I, yeah, I know. My, I know people who. Mine was ninety-two. Okay. I had ninety-two people no. in my graduating class. Oh wow! Yeah, exactly. So it was like a huge, sort of, cultural change. You know, for I don't know sub suburban kids. You know, I mean, Methuen is technically a city, so everything kind of changed for us. I think you know, going to Methuen High because uh, that's ultimately how we were exposed to hardcore, you know. I mean, there were kids older than us that were they're actually going to shows and they sort of knew about stuff that was happening that was local and it was like actual bands you could go see play. So that was exciting to me, you know, and I, I remember checking out hardcore shows I hated it, actually. At first, I hated it because it was, it seemed really violent, you know? Mm -hmm. And it wasn't like the friendly sort of crowd excitement that you see in like the Even Flow video, <laughs> you know, <laughs> or like the Smells Like Teen Spirit video. Like there's something a little bit more macho and angry about it. So I hated it at first. And I was very rebellious against it for like, I don't know, maybe like a year and a half or something. I just, I just refused to go there. I just thought, you know, that's not what I grew up sort of being in love with when it comes to music. And I was like, you know, I'm in the wrong city. I just, you know, I just want to move to Seattle and just get it over with. And, <laughs> you know, <laughs> just, you know, take a flannel carpet ride out to Seattle and just, you know, start over. But, but there was still something like really exciting about the prospect of live music kind of being around me. And I just thought, well, maybe there's, maybe there's something else. Maybe there's something else in this scene that, you know, I can gravitate towards. So I didn't like totally write it off. And, you know, obviously friends of mine at the time are like really into it. So, you know, slowly I started to get exposed to music from that world and you know I came around to it and I think actually one of the first bands that really kind of clicked to me was Converge I remember hearing Halo and Haystack um, the original pressing of that record I mean now you can get it as I think it's called Caring and Killing 
Um, but it's a collection of stuff from around that same time period. But what I first heard was Halo in a Haystack, which is the original recordings of that material. And I just thought, oh, okay, this is cool. This is something brainy and it's definitely metal. And it just seemed a little bit more adventurous than some of the other hardcore that I'd been exposed to. And so I could relate to it. And I think ultimately that's what made me think, well, maybe, maybe I could start a hardcore band, you know? And so I did, you know, and, and actually the the person who played me converge for the very first time was Adam McGrath. And he and I shared a study hall in high school. Study hall was like, you know, (laughs) it's when you're supposed to be doing your homework Mm-hmm. And he and I just, we became friends. We actually didn't like each other at first. And I remember thinking, oh, he's into hardcore. I don't know about that dude. You know, and Adam was like, oh, that guy's like still into grunge. Like, get with it, man. Hardcore is like <laughs> what's happening. <laughs> so we actually didn't like, we didn't become friends at first, but we had to share a study hall together. And I remember it was like the first day of the study hall we kind of looked at each other and then we looked around and there was like no one else that we'd rather really be hanging out with in study hall so we're like all right fuck it let's just sit together and that's kind of how our friendship started and but he played me converge among other things and i was like this is cool this is really cool this is actually clicking with me so the idea to do a hardcore band kind of started right there and then she had more of a, a metal slash classic rock background, right? So that sort of made sense to you as opposed to maybe some of the hardcore that had more of a punk, you know, thread to it. Yeah, definitely. I mean, mm-hmm. you know, it was it was definitely part of my dad's listening taste. So growing mm-hmm. up, you know, my guitar teacher told me, you know, why don't you listen to Led Zeppelin, I bet I'm, he's like, I'm almost certain your dad has a Led Zeppelin record, at least one in his collection. Mm-hmm. He was right. <laughs> so, um, yeah, and then the metal, obviously that kind of was introduced to me through my neighborhood friends, and, and then the hardcore element sort of came a little bit later on. But, yeah, mm-hmm. it, you know, and that's kind of what you hear in the very earliest version of Caven, you know. Yeah, I'm glad you mentioned that because, in terms of, um, I guess classifying the like the first record, I've seen the the word metalcore applied to it, which it's interesting because I when I think about you know hardcore and metal, there are some things that work together, but there are also some things that 
are in opposition to each other um, in terms of style and performance and and the end result in terms of the sound. Uh, do you think that that's a fair or or logical description for that first record? Uh, which record are you talking about? The first Caven album. Beyond until, uh, until your heart stops. Is that that's the oh, first okay. one? That was the first record that we made uh, in one fell swoop, as opposed to you know just these random recordings that were re- originally issued on seven inches and singles and comps. And, right. Um, yeah. Sorry. What, what was the question? Just the the, <laughs> the the idea of metalcore. I've always found that to be a little bit like it. It seems like metal and hardcore don't necessarily always. Or shouldn't in it would be like the same way as like describing like um like folk and electronica music like they don't seem to like work together, um, and it seems like metal and hardcore should not necessarily work together. Although somehow th- those early like Beyond Hyperthermia and then Until Your Heart Stops, those records get tagged with that. And I'm curious if you agree with that idea that they are both metal and hardcore in their sound. Yeah. Yeah, definitely. Um, it's funny you mention that because I read about, you know, punk history and how, you know, bands like VOC and BRI and, you know, even Anthrax and were doing that sort of thing where they were blending metal and hardcore together, you know, like 10 years before, 10 or 15 years before, you know, Haven was even a band and people really sort of scratching their heads like what's going on here um is this right can you do that and you know the response is being very volatile and dividing amongst like you know fans and when i sort of figured that out at some point i just felt like oh okay well it's it's always been a challenge for musicians or people just kind of doing what they love to take a little bit from everything and throw it all in a pot and mix it up and and for it to appeal to people right off the bat, you know? Mm-hmm. Um, but I think when we were just in the thick of making that stuff, there was so much exciting music going on around us that we got to see and experience quite a bit, you know? Being in like our late teens, early 20s, like always going to shows. I mean, always trying to get on shows and play as much as we could. And, you know, it was a very social thing too, just kind of knowing how people, you know, in our scene were sort of trying to musically push themselves as well. So I just felt like, well, this is a very like free and creative place. And as long as we have a band that everybody is dedicated to and we can get together to actually do this band and you know some cool stuff can come out of it um i don't know if that really answers your question but yeah i'm just trying to maybe get into my 19 year old brain right now to <laughs> it, it's taken me a little bit i have to you know sort of weave my way in there so be patient with me <laughs> no it's okay so the those first two uh albums have a obviously very aggressive sound vocally you know I, how would you describe your vocal on those two records or the vocals um did you do all this were you doing all the singing at that point i took over as the lead vocalist for the band on until your heart stops 
Yeah. Prior to that, I would say that you know I was sort of like the secondary singer in the band, or at least I felt that way or approached it that way. And then, so the the first two records, I would say it's more of a a scream kind of vocal. And then by the time you get to uh, Jupiter, the melodic side of the band starts to to come out. Can you talk a little bit about the transition? How, how did that occur? And was there any was everybody on the band on the same page about that change in direction, or was there any pushback? Talk us talk us through that a little bit. Well, once the band had made it until your heart stops and we were sort of out there actively playing some of those songs and that material. We had a lineup that felt like pretty solid. And it was kind of the first time that we really felt that way, maybe since the band first started. And it's not to discredit anyone that was in the band prior to the Until Your Heart Stops lineup, because everybody that was a part of Cave and, you know, was meant to be there at a certain point. And it just seemed like once we had made that record, there was like a sense of a lot of like dust kind of settling. And we just sort of felt a little bit more relaxed and, and like, all right, well, this is this is a, a chemistry that works really well. And, you know, let's try to roll with this. And I think for me, once I sort of felt that way with this particular lineup in the band, it just seemed like, well, we could really kind of do anything at this point, as long as we're all present to be doing it, you know, uh, mm-hmm. whatever that musical journey might be. Um, so it was very liberating. And something else that I felt personally was that, um, you know, there were so many great bands pushing the envelope with heavy music at the time that, you know, I didn't know how much more technical a band like Haven could could get without it just sounding like forced or, I don't know, just sort of beyond what we're sort of capable of doing and having it sound convincing or pulling it off well, you know, in a room of people. So the idea was to just, well, what if we played with the same intensity that we did on Until Your Heart Stops, but you know, the technicality factor was, I don't know, sort of not so focused upon. And, you know, let's try something else instead. Let's try, you know, taking these spacier elements from Until Your Heart Stops and maybe expanding upon that and and see Mm -hmm. what happens with that. You know, we all love Live at Pompeii, the Pink Floyd movie. You know, we all got really into watching David Gilmore you know, with his shirt off and no shoes, just playing with a delay pedal and dirt. <laughs> so it's like, all right, well, you know, that looks pretty fun. Let's bring that into the picture. And yeah, I don't know. That's kind of how it started, really. Just, again, it was, I put a lot of emphasis on just the lineup of the band sort of being what it was and feeling like, oh, this is really cool. This is a bunch of people who seem kind of up for anything. And uh, we'll, we'll see where that takes us. So you're really confident in the lineup and you guys all were open to taking the band wherever it may go. Did you have any concerns or pushback from, you know, the audience that you had developed at that point that, you know, this yeah, change definitely. in direction? Okay. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I think it was warranted, you know, people who really love the Until Your Heart Stops record um, are going to see this 
the Taven that they knew or they thought of. And Span was not very metal anymore. <laughs> or all this new stuff they're doing is not very metal. And where's the Caven that I know? What's going on here? So it's understandable. And we kind of fuck with people too. You know, we play like 10 or 15 seconds of moral eclipse and then just stop and, I don't know, play something else, you know? Mm. <laughs> um, you know, there's sort of a punk element to that. I mean, I don't know how punk it is to, like, alienate your audience. Not that we were trying to alienate anyone. In, in, in fact, we just we sort of felt like, well, maybe we can just sort of bring a different flavor to these shows that we're playing, you know? I mean, a lot of the shows that we did at that time prior to Jupiter were with, you know, bands that kind of, I guess you could classify as like metalcore or mathcore or hardcore and, you know, there was something exciting about standing out a little bit, even if it's in a way that like maybe disappoints some people, but other people seem to be into it too. It was like at the end of it, we just kind of felt like, well, hopefully for every person we bummed out, maybe we like really kind of turned on like two people, you know? Mm -hmm. <laughs> um, and then that started to happen a little bit. I think once Ju the Jupiter record finally came out, and people started to kind of just know the material, they could like take it home and listen to it. We started to kind of broaden our audience a little bit and it was kind of exciting, you know? Mm -hmm. um, so it just took some perseverance. Again, you're all very much like, you know, sort of wrapped up in Caden being our life at that point. So it kind of just felt like, like a, like wearing a bodysuit or something or having like this armor on, like, you know, we're a fucking band. We can do anything we want, you know? I think one of the things that Jay and I really responded to with regards to the Jupiter record, I, I can't speak for Jay. I think that's the record I discovered the band on. And then I sort of went backwards at that time and then have, you know, stayed current with what, whatever came out. But is that you take a lot of chances on that record vocally and even just on the first track, the the vocal is doing the. It's utilizing a, like a. It sounds like an Eastern scale in part of the vocal, which is kind of. Um, you know, if you listen to the first two releases, that's not something that you, that the vocal is doing is taking these non traditional influences and incorporating them into the the music. And I'm wondering what sort of stuff you were listening to at that time that was influencing taking sort of you know not these it's not even a hard rock or a, or a metal sound that's going on there's some really interesting non-traditional sounds that are incorporated into this record I
think the idea of like singing along to riffs or guitar lines, you know, er everybody is sort of in debt to Ozzy for that, you know. Mm -hmm. Got to thank Iron Man for that pretty much. But I hear what you're saying in terms of like the song Jupiter, maybe some other parts of that record. Um, I think Sunny Day Real Estate was a pretty big influence on me. Um, I mean, it made me want to sing with like a fake British accent. I mean, them and the Beatles. <laughs> the Beatles obviously had real British accents, but, you know, um, they were a huge influence on me, Sunny Day Real Estate. And I think you'll hear a little bit of that maybe in their music. I was really into like the how it feels to be something on. Is that the name of the record? Yeah. I was really into that one that came out in like 98. You know, I got to see them play and, you know, it was really exciting for me. The band was very meaningful to me. There was, there was that. And then a band like Failure, they always had really strange vocal melodies. And that was always the fun of listening to that band for me was kind of guessing where the resolve was going to be or how he was going to sing his way out of this weird chord progression that he set up for himself. And so I tried to take all that and maybe put it into Jupiter, or, or it wasn't even trying, it just sort of happened when the band was like trying to take a more melodic approach, and that just seemed to make sense to me, you know? So on a song like Jupiter, are you writing the guitar part and then bringing the vocal to it after, or is that a a guitar part that like Adam is writing and then you're trying to figure out what to do to with it. I don't remember who wrote that line, but I think at that point we were still really heavily basing our writing on guitar parts and, you know, very sort of like guitar jammy type of ideas. And, you know, I would just put a mic in front of me and, and when it came time to try to mess around vocals, I, I would just have to, you know, work with my limitations and and just sort of push out some air that felt like it made sense with what my hands were doing, you know? Because uh, we were always a very live-based band, you know? It was always like putting ideas and concepts together that we were going to be able to actually perform, you know? Or at least at least for me, you know? Um, it wasn't that way necessarily until your heart, heart stops, but that record was so much more sort of wild and crazy in terms of coming together. But for Jupiter, you know, we actually got to rehearse quite a bit. And, and there was talk of even trying to, like, track vocals and music together live, which would have been really bold. And we ended up overdubbing the vocals, but, you know, the, most of the music was recorded live on that record. So, yeah, I mean, we were rehearsing pretty regularly like once a week maybe more if we could do it especially around the time when the record was scheduled to be recorded and so you know I would just try stuff and you know listen back to it we'd make four track recordings or boombox recordings and just try to hear what works you know and trial and error really so for antenna you wound up on a major label correct uh, how did how did that come about well, kind of like what I was saying before with Jupiter, you know, the, the whole landscape for us started to change a little bit in terms of like the bands we were playing with and some of the people coming to our shows, uh, including like all of a sudden 
seemed like there were people interested in working with our band, you know, from like management companies, PR companies and lawyers and major labels. And it all kind of started to like swirl together, all that sort of activity. And, you know, we dealt with it as best as we could. I mean, it was exciting and we embraced it as best as we could, you know? And, you know, we were still a Boston band, like all of us were still living in Boston. And, you know, it felt very exciting. I mean, Boston is overall, it's like, it's a small town. You know, I live in New York now, so I can say that. (laughs) (laughs) But, um, you know, at the time, it just, it felt like kind of the, the right thing to happen for us. Like, we worked. We worked hard for our band to maybe have a chance at that world if we wanted it, you know? And that was the whole idea for us. It was like, well, we've worked really hard. We've busted our ass with this band. You know, we have the option of going that route if we want to. And that's just kind of how we looked at it. And we ended up going that route. It wasn't a quick decision, you know, but I felt like, I felt like everybody was sort of ready to take the chance at that time because, I mean, our history as a band is sort of crazy and wild enough as it is. Like, why not? Why not just throw this new wild card in the mix and see what happens, you know? I've read some quotes from from Adam around that time that said that there was a backlash from people regarding not only just signing to the record but because of the sound of the record. Was that difficult to deal with, or were you guys sort of of the mindset that, look, we're going to make the record we're going to make, and I'm, you know, if people don't want to listen to it, that's fine. I think the hardest thing for, well, I think one really difficult thing to deal with was the amount of time that went into making the record. It was a long time. It was longer than any of us had ever spent making the record before. It's probably longer than any of us will ever and making another record. It was just difficult because the songs had been put through the ringer and, you know, the original sort of spark that made a lot of these songs was, it was kind of hard to see. It was hard to feel it after a while. And, you know, it's even tough to say that at this point and to put that out there. But that's because a lot of people love that record. I don't want to spoil that for anyone, you know, but it was exhausting. It was too long. We spent way too long on it, you know. How much time was it? And, um, well, the actual recording took us like an entire summer. But prior to that, I mean, we'd been like demoing songs, rewriting songs, and then, you know, working with like a producer that might want to make our record for us and then this producer had x amount of ideas to do this and that and this with this group of songs and and then you know a few months later we would work with someone else and try this or that and it was just so different from our process as a band up until that point so yeah i mean what you're hearing on that record is something that's very like settled and almost calm in a way, like, there's no rush to it. I mean, there's no rush when you're just like, 
you've got a studio for two and a half months, and all right, let's try to get some drum sounds today. That is not how it worked in like '95 or '96, you know. And mm-hmm. um, you know, we're there at a recording studio with our friends who have driver's licenses. We don't, so it's on their clock, and they're borrowing their mom's car, and we're like, "Fuck, we got to get this done!" Like there, and that's like, I mean, that's you know, that was all in the past, and. Um, I think something gets lost when the urgency is not there. And maybe we we knew that. We kind of knew that after getting this record back to us after it had been mixed. And, you know, you, there's a self-consciousness involved. Like, all right, we're putting this out there, and it is fucking different. It is a way different feel than what you're used to. But... Uh, we hope you like it. It took us fucking two years to make. Um, <laughs> you just gotta like bite your tongue a little bit, and you know that coupled with the fact that we're all like in our early twenties. You know, Jesus Christ. I mean, it seems like lifetimes ago. So during that period, you mentioned about the long period between records. You started working on uh, another band, uh, actually, and you did some solo material stuff during that time as well, right? The Ole Sunday is that came out around that time. And then new idea society was around that time as well. Yeah. That would have been around the turn of the century, maybe okay. a little bit afterwards. So did that stuff come out because you were frustrated with the, the time it was taking to make that record? Or was that just sort of like in the hopper that, you know, I've got some downtime and, I'm going to start working on this other stuff. Yeah, I think it was more of the downtime aspect of things and just sort of... I mean, there's sort of this restless side of me that always likes to feel like I'm working or working on something just to keep the grease on the gears, you know? And a, a lot of artists that I admire have also chosen various outlets for their work that's maybe um, off to the side of whatever they're doing for their main focus. And um, I've always been a champion of that, you know, that mindset and that practice. So, again, like in the music world that we're a part of, there's just so many people doing cool shit with labels and um, projects and music. It's just inevitable that you wrapped up and you know at one minute talking about like making a band or putting out a record on somebody's label and you know it's I was very fortunate in a lot of ways that people followed through and you know so you know had a band like New Idea Society make a few records and do some touring and putting out solo records and touring on that a little bit downtime just for the challenge of playing solo shows scaring the living shit out of myself (laughs) (laughs) um yeah so just kind of a continuation of just doing it i guess do you have different methods of of writing based on the project like in in caven is it more of a collaborative um writing process as opposed to like a different project where you might bring a finished song to the 
to a, a band that you're working with? Haven is much more of a collaborative thing now. Uh, it wasn't always that way. I was very meticulous about parts and structuring things. I had very specific ideas for drums, patterns, which I would like document on a four track or, you know, make scratch demos at home and try to show those guys, get them on board and work it out in a room together. Some of my other bands weren't really like that. Um, there was much more sort of like giving up that control or that want of control uh, earlier on with New Idea Society. That was more of Mike's vehicle for his songwriting and then me just sort of thinking of cool ways to dress up his songs or build them construct them, offer some criticisms, uh, constructive criticisms on arrangements here and there. and Very collaborative. But, um, yeah, so I guess you can sort of maybe take different roles in certain situations. You know, people are like chemicals in that way. Like, you get different people together and different reactions take place. And that's always very interesting to me. Do you like it when you can sort of be the a player instead of the, the main songwriter? Does that free you up? Nowadays, yeah. Um, I had a lot of energy for conceptualizing and seeing this overall picture and wanting to put it into motion when I was younger. I still have that to a degree, but in a band setting, I look for different things now than what I did when I was younger. I think it's just because I've had the fortune of playing with so many great different players over the years that I've learned to relax a bit. And it's also exciting to see these people grow into their own sort of musical monsters, you know, over time. And so, yeah, I much more prefer the element of surprise now or if I'm in a scenario and I have maybe like a couple riffs or just sort of a vague idea for a song. That's good enough for me. That's good enough to go into a situation and then to sort of like let it bloom with a group of people in like a trusted scenario where everyone's sort of on the same page. For at the at the moment is is Mutoid Man your primary songwriting vehicle because I know that, you know, uh Caven had not played for about three years until I think it was like last December. And I think, is there an, a planned album for Mutoid Man? I know there's like an EP that's come out. Yeah, um, we have an album coming out in the summer on Sergeant House. And as far as like songwriting and at least on the sort of heavier side of things, the music that I've been making, it's gotten a lot of my attention in the past couple of years. I think the EP came out a lot better than Ben and I had ever really thought it was going to come out um we were really surprised in the end i think as we kept working on it we just sort of wanted to keep upping the, the ante on it you know in terms of just developing the songs and the recording and the whole process just was really really rewarding for us in the end and then that that whole cycle for us has just been really worth putting the time and effort into continuing and you know, we hope to do some touring on the record and just 
for people to see the band, you know. The shows have been really great. So we want to just kind of get out there and play for many people who want to see us. What do you think of the um, the state of metal right now? Um, you know, I, I consider Cave-In as being one of the bands in the 90s that kind of played a role in doing some things that, uh, like we had talked about previously, weren't. Sh- I don't think anybody envisioned metal doing and, and making it work and pushing it in new, exciting places. What do you think about uh, the state of it now? I'm always finding really great stuff to listen to. I guess I have some really good filters, mm-hmm. you know, I have friends who really care about finding great stuff and they and they, they hunger for it, you know, and they're just happy to share their discoveries. So I'm very fortunate in that way. Um, I think if you're looking for great music, it can get very intimidating because there's just so many places to find it now. It's so much easier than it was. When I was growing up, that you just you need some navigation. You need people to help you. And there's a lot of stuff that I hear that I don't like, but it's so easy to ignore. It's so easy to kind of get into your own world and just, you know, kind of like what I was saying before about like just holding up in a room and listening to like Ride the Lightning and Appetite for Destruction and kind of like letting it grow me or like start to define me or like mold me and shape me a little bit. Like, you can do that still with records that are new and exciting to you. Mm -hmm. You know, you just take what's out there and you just kind of hole up with it. And, you know, you can wear blinders in a way so that, you know, the other stuff isn't distracting. And as far as, like, new metal goes, there's there's just so much of it. There's so much happening. It just keeps mutating. Mm-hmm. And I'm always finding, like, little nuggets in the mutations <laughs> to really, like, get into. Um, so it keeps me excited, too. I mean, yeah. I don't think anyone who has, like, stood in front of a full stack just at full volume and just, like, just let it rip. Like, that's, it's not something that easily gets boring, mm-hmm. you know? And as long as you feel that, like, someone out there is excited by that like it kind of validates your own instincts a bit yeah i feel like um rock and roll in general is pretty stale but there's all of these metal bands that are doing really exciting things that i just i don't i just didn't know the the i've always been a fan of the genre but i never would have guessed that it would be as uh creative as it is right now so i just wanted to get your point of view on that as being somebody in the 90s who was kind of flying the flag and um, trying to push the boundaries of it. Um, and it's, um, it's exciting to hear that you're making new music that kind of fits in that, that vein as well. So, What's on the horizon um, for you coming up? I know you, you mentioned the Mutoid Man record. Um, is with the, 
I had read that Hydrahead is pretty much becoming a catalog record. I don't think they've put out anything recently, and that's where Caven was based. Is that going to affect the possibility of future Caven records? I'm not too sure what the future for Caven records being in print is going to be exactly, but it seems that Aaron and Hydrahead are interested in preserving what legacy that they've created enough that like the records that I think are landmark releases for them are getting new lives and I feel very fortunate that you know Caven is included in those efforts I know that there's a few releases that um, haven't been reissued yet I'm not sure if it's going to get to that point with certain records in the Caven catalog because some are more well-known than others. Some seem to have done better than others. I really don't know exactly how choosing process works, but, you know, it seems like, it seems like most people who really want a Caven record can probably find one. Like, there's probably enough out there now that I think it would sort of satisfy whatever cravings like our fans have I would think I'm not 100% sure it's really hard to say with this band you know we always sort of joke about how Haven is a lot bigger in people's minds than the band actually is I think there's some truth to that you know um, but as far as vinyl goes you know I think as long as there's interest out there we're always happy to like be on board for our records getting a new introduction you know whether it's vinyl or maybe we maybe there's some cool stuff in our vaults that you know even like the most dedicated hardcore caven fans haven't heard yet and all right well maybe now's the time to put it out you know or if we ever make new music it's always exciting to see your music printed in some sort of physical format you know I, I don't think I'm ever going to lose the passion for you know going that route yeah we'll see I, I think um, well I can say that um, the Creative Eclipses record is going to be reissued which is pretty exciting because it originally came out on a 7 inch and it's being reissued now on a 12 inch with some bonus material and the packaging looks great um, the whole package is awesome. It's been remastered, and I'm really happy with the bonus tracks and, and how they complement the original record. And I think it's going to be good.
think as long as we can continue that sort of pattern of quality, if we choose to go this route, then you know I'll, I'll feel good about doing it. Cool. Who's putting that out? Hydrahead. Okay, they're, so they're putting that out too. Okay. Awesome. Um, Jay, do you have anything else? Uh, just real fast. Uh, gear. What what kind of gear do you use now, and how's it evolved over time? What's your favorite guitar and amp combo? The gear that I'm using now, pretty much the same setup that I've had for over 10 years now. The original Sun Model T guitar head from the 70s and cabs that I use are the Sun Fender Reissue 4x12s. It's just really like an all-purpose rig for playing loud and heavy Mm -hmm. and super reliable. For guitars, I have a Les Paul Studio that used to be my dad's, actually, and he gave it to me. Um, Probably when he saw that, I was like pretty serious about actually playing music, so it's a really meaningful guitar to me. And I like playing it because it's just super light. I can kind of throw it around a bit if I want to. My back doesn't hurt after, like, practicing all day <laughs> or playing a show. <laughs> I have a guild that I really like, too. I think it's a Bluebird. I'm not quite sure. But it's from the 70s. It's much heavier. Um, it's more of a commitment to play in that regard. But um, it's a beautiful guitar. Aesthetically, it goes better with my rig, I think. But I got an S1 that I really like, too, a Gibson S1. And I, I modded it with a humbucker the bridge position those guitars originally come with single coils three Mm -hmm. single coils so it's a really unique guitar in that sense now because the neck and the center pickup are like kind of like a classic fender sound and then you can switch to a humbucker and it's like straight up gibson it's a cool little frankenstein guitar i think paul stanley played them in the 70s yeah, the body shape is, um, I have a Gibson Sonex, and the body shape is very similar. I wonder if this was yeah. the predecessor to the Sonex. Yeah, yeah. Full-time neck, you know, you can get some cool bendy mm-hmm. tones coming out of it. Um, I have a Guild acoustic that I really love. It plays like an electric, which I think is why I love it. Like, the neck is super thin, and it's got 24 frets, and a cutaway. Um, I don't know the model name, but the number on the headstock, I can read it for you right now. It's F45-CE. And okay. that's like my go-to guitar for playing solo gigs because um, it's really bright. I got it rigged with a Fishman pickup. I can just put it through all sorts of electronic goodies, and it just fills up a room really nicely. And I actually used it on all the acoustic guitars for Jupiter. So hmm. it's got some history too. And I don't know, I got a bunch of different pedals that I like. I'm kind of a boss guy. I really love boss pedals. There's some nostalgia involved in it, I think. But, you know, an overdrive with the amp setup that I have, pretty much any overdrive is going to do you good. I mean, I've just found that like too much distortion mm-hmm. um, is unnecessary. Because if you're playing with, you know, an old tube amp from the 70s, it's going to have some of its own gain. And then if you're pushing the volume and the speakers are shaking, then all you need is like a little friendly bump. 
yep. just to kind of get you to where you need to go. I think it was Kurt from Converge who told me that, like, Rain and Blood was maybe made with, like, Marshall amps and, like, overdrive pedals. It's very mid-rangey. That's just my preferred sort of place to hit people sonically, you know? Mm-hmm. Well, and the nice thing about Boss is that if you're touring, this is something that the guys from Swerve Driver said because they all play Boss pedals primarily. Said if you're touring and one of your pedals craps out and you've got some like boutique $250 pedal, the local guitar shop is probably not going to have that pedal, but they're going to have a Boss. So if you ever need to replace a pedal when you're on the road, there's always going to be a Boss pedal that you can, you know, get fixed or, or replace it pretty easily. Whereas, you know, the boutique place that you ordered some, you know, super cool fuzz or overdrive might not be able to get you that pedal the same day. So I'm I'm on this I'm on board. I, most of my pedals are are Boss pedals as well, and some electro harmonic stuff. That's pretty much it. Yeah, that's a good point. And that also makes me think, too, that um, back when Caven was first starting to incorporate multiple pedals into our setup, I mean, first thing we would do, we would just sort of throw them all on the floor and plug them all in and tape them up, like tape the <laughs> tape the cords down onto the floor and, and hope that, like, they can come unplugged accidentally or, you know, some mosher doesn't, like, step on them. You know, and then I think one of the first pedal boards that I ever saw was made by Boss. So, and all the compartments were specifically uh, shaped for a Boss pedal. Mm-hmm. So, this is like '97 or '98 or something. And obviously, like using pedals um, and, that, and the whole world of electronics and people involved and that end of things is just developed so so much um it's really exciting and it's just it's it takes effort to keep up you know and sometimes yeah. i i sort of fall by the wayside you know i'm i the farthest i get is maybe checking out like a demo video online or something but yeah sometimes i just sort of feel like a luddite at this point with with my rig compared to what some people got going you know it's, it's amazing it really is well you could be like the guys in failure who don't even have guitar rigs anymore use like fractal patches for their whole setup and it's just all run off of iPads and computers but somehow they get a humongous sound out of that so that's the other end of the wow. spectrum yeah yeah those guys seem pretty techy yeah um <laughs> yeah it's amazing and then like there's something about looking at like old photos of bands playing where like the chord is just going straight from the amp to the guitar that's like it's so endearing sometimes. It's like, oh, I just want that. I don't want to do all this tap dancing. It's just ridiculous. I just want to play. <laughs> yep. I really like. I'm tempted to just like throw them all out sometimes, uh, well, or just leave them at home. So many people chase the ACDC sound, and they just have Marshall amps and good guitars and good technique, and they plug straight in. You know, and the guitar players are brothers. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Yep. So it's kind of like it's kind of like one dude doubling his guitar part, but mm-hmm. in this case, it's actually brothers playing mm-hmm. almost identical to each other. It, that is a huge, huge component of that band sound. It's hard to do. Yeah, blood is thicker than water, man. <laughs> I know. Even in rock and roll. That's why I play an SG because of uh, ACDC. Nice. And then- 
and I'm sure, I'm sure that's a why a lot bands. of people play SJC. Yes, I know. <laughs> I'm not the only one. Yeah. <laughs> well, sold a, a couple guitars in their day. Yeah. Yeah. No kidding. Well, it's we've been at this for quite a while, and we should probably wrap up now, just because at some point I need to go to bed and go to, to work to the, in the morning. So, <laughs> Steve, we gotta plug your website. Um, Stephen Brodsky. I didn't even ask if that's the correct one. Is it Brodsky? Is how you pronounce it? Yes. Okay. StephenBrodsky.com. That's where people can go check out music. And there's a lot of other content on the website. Check out. And I think there's a Cavens show scheduled in like May. Is that correct? Like a one-off show? Yeah. Cavens going to be playing Psycho California uh, May 15th, I believe the date is. Okay, and then you've got the Mutoid Man record coming out later this year, right? Yes. All right. Well, thank you for giving up you know, time on your Sunday evening. We appreciate this. Uh, it was fun to talk about all the history of the band and, and your musical history and everything. So um, we really appreciate you, know, you giving up your time. Cool. Thanks so much. I mean, I've done some research on what you guys do and I've checked out some of your other interviews and you do really great work, so I was just happy to be a part of it. And oh, um, yeah, <laughs> and please, please feel free to comb through all the stuff, cut out my mumbling and or anything that doesn't make sense. I'm not always the best talker, but uh, I will not be offended. So, for the sake of clarity, um, <laughs> this conversation is yours from here on out. <laughs> well, we do that anyways for ourselves, so uh, I oh, usually. Cool. I'm the one who who does the editing, and I, I easily have about 200, and 200 to 250 edits per episode, cutting out all our ums and uhs and popping our t's and all that kind of stuff. Um, Whatever makes me smarter. <laughs> <laughs> all right. All right, guys. Thanks again, Steve. Yeah, thanks, Steven. Appreciate it. No problem. Thank you, and uh, be in touch. Jay, that was our in-depth and very fun interview with Stephen Brodsky of Caven and his most recent project, Mutoid Man. He's a very busy man, solo material, all sorts of bands he's been in since a teenager, just killing it. And as we mentioned, people can go to stephenbrodsky.com for B-R-O-D-S-K-Y is how you spell the last name. Just a lot of fun. He's one of those guys where... You almost get the sense like the, his best work is still ahead of him. Yes. Which is, you know, rare to say um, for somebody who's been doing it, you know, as long as he has. But he's just ca- he is, he's just capable in so many ways and so many different styles and instruments. And I, I look forward to seeing what, what he does going forward. Yes, absolutely. So we want to remind everybody, if you liked this episode uh, as much as we did, please head on over to our iTunes page and leave us some positive feedback. We'd greatly appreciate it. And of course, if you have a album that you would like us to review, head on over to our request review page and hit us up with a review. We are always looking for new albums to review. Uh, That's it. Another episode in the books. We are done. 
the month of May is over, so we will be back in June with more reviews, roundtables, and reviews. Thanks again for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Dig Me Out. So. Join the conversation about this episode at digmeoutpodcast.com, where you can find links to our Facebook page and Twitter feed, as well as links to our request a review and merchandise pages. Yeah.